If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. In today's episode, I'm very excited to chat with my friend, mentor, Chris Blackwell. Chris is someone I feel immensely lucky to call a friend. He's the founder of Island Records, Island Alive Films, Blackwell Rum, and the Island Outpost family of resorts in Jamaica. He's credited with discovering Bob Marley and was his manager until his death in 1981. And Chris and Island Records put out many other musical treasures, including albums by Cat Stevens, Traffic, Grace Jones, Nick Drake, Nirvana, among many, many others. Chris is 82 years young, he's been around the world, he's lived nine lives, and is one of the kindest, funniest, most laid-back world changers you'll ever meet. And he is, without a question, one of the heavyweights of both the music and boutique hospitality industries. He now dedicates most of his time to Jamaica and his island outpost properties throughout the island. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Blackwell. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks for being on. Where are you today? I am in New York City where I have been under lockdown basically for about 10 weeks. It's been quite an experience. And you're normally spending the majority of your time in you know, your farm in the center of Jamaica, Pontrepont, or in the ocean at your other property, Goldeneye. Is this the longest in, in decades that you've been in the city? Yes, definitely. Longest ever. Of course, it's very different now, you know, I mean, because... There are very few cars on the street. There are very few people walking. Hardly any shops are open and restaurants aren't open. Do you recall another time in your lifetime where people were in a pandemic or locked in their houses? No, I don't remember that. Because, um, you know, when, when polio came on the scene, I had polio, but it was a minor. It wasn't like this. You know, it wasn't something that you had to... Be careful to bump into somebody and because it was catching. You were born in Jamaica, 
1937. You've been around the world. You've lived nine lives. You're one of the kindest, funniest, most laid back world changers I've ever met. You're one of, you know, the few people that really were a mentor to myself and my partners without any expectation of return. I, I wanted to start at, at the beginning though. I want, you know, you're, you're, you're a rare breed, a white Jamaican. So I yeah. wanted, I wanted you to give us the, uh, the, the origin story. I was actually born in London and came to Jamaica when I was six months. I grew up, the, the first five years was all in Jamaica. And then when I was about um, six or seven, I was sent to England to go to a school. It was a Catholic school. My father's mother was a sort of religious maniac. And she, she really, you know, insisted that I needed to be brought up as a, as a Catholic, etc. So my mother was originally Spanish, Portuguese Jews who came to Jamaica in the uh, 1700s. I was sent to England when I was six and something to go to school. And I went to a, a Catholic school and it was miserable, absolutely miserable. Uh, it was a bad idea to send me there because I'd been very sick with asthma. I always had asthma very badly. And, and the school was in the Thames Valley. And just about the worst place you can be if you uh, have asthma is in a damp climate. So I was very sick. I was in, you know, I was in hospital a lot of time. I was on breathing things. And then I went back to Jamaica when I was about seven and a half and um, was there for about a year. And then I came back to school and went to another school in England. That was a school which was on the seaside, um, you know, on the eastern coast of England. And it was, it, that was fine. And I I wasn't sick, and it was much healthier. And then after that, I was uh, I went to what was really kind of a posh school, which um, I got into purely because um, my uh, family had gone to that school and and donated a lot of money to the school. You know, about fifty or sixty years before I went there, I managed to get into the school. I actually enjoyed it. I enjoyed my whole time at school there. They they didn't enjoy me so much, but I enjoyed it a lot. And then I, I know that you decided not to attend university. What led you to that decision? Well, the truth of it is because I, I didn't pass any exams. I couldn't have qualified for anything. So I didn't have, um, I, I, I had three O levels in two different attempts, which is valueless. The truth is that, you know, I'm totally uneducated officially. You know, all my education has come from uh, meeting people, talking to people, hanging out. Well, amazing. And, you know, I know that you moved back to Jamaica and were in real estate and managing jukeboxes and going to shows. I know that's what led to the transition in your interest in, in music. But tell us, bring us back there a little bit. Well, I was back in Jamaica a little earlier than that. I think I was about, okay. about 17 or something like that. I was or 16 or 17. Again, from a connection, I managed to get, uh, I was offered a job. I was offered a job by the governor of Jamaica, the person who was the British governor at the time. My role was to like meet people who were coming to visit King's house and, you know, meet them and look after them and, you know, be somebody who, who sort of 
met them at the entrance and took them around and introduced them. You know, it was that, that kind of a job. Part of my job would be, you know, to also take the governor and his wife to church every Sunday. And it was that kind of a job. It was something which was a, gr a great opportunity because it was the time when Jamaica was getting ready to become independent. So all the sort of main politicians and main people who were going to be running Jamaica would come to King's house all the time. And so I got to meet and, and know all the people who was basically uh, over the next, you know, five or 10 years were going to be running Jamaica. I, I enjoyed that a lot. And then the person who had offered me the job, he was then transferred to, to be a governor in Cyprus, <clears throat> which was another British territory, as it were, and which was going through a lot of problems at the time. So he left. <clears throat> and when he left, um, I actually left the job too. And I got a job selling real estate and, you know, moving around like that. And then I did, did that for a little bit. And you know, I still really started going to all the sound system shows, sound system dances and things. And tell, tell the listeners what a sound system is and what a sound system show dance is. Well, what it was in those days, there were speakers, which would be like two stories high almost, you know, just massive speakers. The volume they would be able to pump out was just unbelievable. You could hear, you could hear it for five miles away. It was really, really exciting. The music that was initially played at that time, most of it, was American R&B music. It was mostly from New Orleans, from Fats Domino, people like that. I used to go to other shows, and I went to this, um, this you know, where, where, where people would just come and sing a song, etc., that kind of thing. I was amazed that there was a couple of guys there who I thought, well, God, these guys are really good singers. I should maybe meet with them and see if I could make a record with them or anything. And this is before you, you had never made a record before. This just popped in your head. That just popped in my head, yes. So after the show was there, I went backstage. and I, the, the, the guy who I was re really sort of focused on was a guy who had a voice very similar to a singer called Brooke Benton, who was a very popular singer at that time black artist, a great, great singer. So I spoke to him about maybe oh, I'd love to do a record with him. Has he written any songs or anything? And, and the guy said, well, you know, he's writing a song, etc." And then another guy came up and said, well, what about me? And then another guy said, came up and said, what about me? So I found myself agreeing to make three records with three different guys, which is what I did. And the first one I put out, went to number one. In Jamaica? In Jamaica, yeah. And then the second one I put out went to number one. And then the third record I put out went to number one, and they all stayed right in the top ten. In fact, six songs were in the top ten because it was the three songs, the A-sides and the B-sides. And there were six songs in the top ten, which is the highest I ever achieved in the music business. It was actually the first three records I ever put out. I just loved the whole process. That, that was just it for me. I just, I just loved it. It was exciting going in and working in the studio, working with the people, and then, you know, then going out and then hustling them around and trying to get them into jukeboxes. At one time, I managed three jukeboxes in Jamaica. 
I made a deal with somebody who had the jukeboxes that I would sort of manage them for him and take new music, etc., etc. That was an incredible experience because you'd go all around the, the different bars and clubs and things all, all around in Jamaica, Jamaica, way in the country. Of course, a jukebox was everything in those days. That was, that, that was it because that, that brought the music to the bar, to the club. Again, I learned a, a lot from that. That, I mean, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was really a trip. You'd arrive sometimes, you know, and you'd, uh, as you arrived and going to the little bar, in a minute or in five minutes, you know, the, the bar was packed and you could not move. And it was, whether it was, it was one particular fishing village, I remember, was like that. Everybody was, everybody was virtually almost naked. They were all fishermen. The, the whole bar was absolutely packed. And... I took out one of the songs which had been on the jukebox, which I noticed hadn't been played much, so I thought I'd take that out and replace it by something else. As I took it out, everybody, it was like a, almost like a riot. Don't take that out, put that back, blah, blah, blah. It was really fun. It was like, it was just a, a sort of totally strange, unusual, weird life. Most people had never seen anybody of my complexion you know, in, in the areas that I was, because it was just, it was just the, the, the roots, you know, it was fishermen or it was people working in the country in the uh, sugar estates or things like that. And that's really where I started. And what led to your thinking around taking these records to the UK? Well, I'll tell you what that was, was because after I released my records and they all became successful, the sound system guys they started producing records too. Before, they had mainly just imported records. And in cases, I would go and, you know, come up to New York and buy the records and come back and sell it to the sound system guys. But the sound system guys then decided they'd start producing records. And their records were great. You know, my records had become a little smooth and a little kind of polished and their records were raw and exciting and uh, stimulating, you know. And I thought to myself, well, you know something, these guys, uh, <laughs> their records are really, really great. My records at that time, the ones I'd made, were selling in England, but they weren't selling so well in, in Jamaica. So uh, I went to see all the sound system guys, and I said, Little, give me your records in England. I'm going to go to England and base myself there give me your recordings in England and I'll re release them for you in England. And pretty much all of them gave me the, the rights to market their records in England. And so that's really how I started in England. Your first hit was uh, Millie's Small My Boy Lollipop, correct? Yes, that was, my, that was my first top hit, top of the charts hit, yeah. In the UK now. You had your top of the chart, first record you ever put out in Jamaica, first three but this is, this is a much bigger market. And as I understand it, there were Jamaican communities, but on the outskirts of, of London, on the outskirts of these major cities, um, this, was, this was a major sort of reggae crossover, correct? Yes, I would say, honestly, that's pretty much the first record, first ska record, really, which became a big hit. Which, and ska became the music, the name of the music initially, before, before reggae became born, reggae became born 
in the mid-60s, I think. This was in the early 60s. And so ska was really the, the, the rhythm there, you know, and those were the records that were selling to the Jamaicans who lived in England. And it became huge. So my, 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 when I say huge, I mean on a tiny basis, but it was, it was huge. I mean, it was busy all the time because I was driving around in a little mini Cooper visiting all the record stores and selling them records. Then sometimes, you know, I travel to Bristol or travel to Birmingham or something, but most of the time it was really all around London. And again, it was something that I really loved doing because it was, it was something that was growing. It wasn't something that was taking off initially because the only people that, that initially were buying it, the records were the Jamaicans who were living in England. But after a bit, it started to seep into sort of people who went to clubs. And after a bit, it started to pick up a kind of following. But it didn't happen quickly. It happened kind of slowly and steadily. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math and Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. 
and around this time, was all this under Island Records, these these artists that you were putting out, or these individual records before you had started Island? No, I started I started Island with those with with those those three guys I, I told you about who I saw at the club. And then around the same time, like within those those few years, you first went out to Goldeneye, correct? Goldeneye, yes, I'd been to Goldeneye because I knew Ian Fleming and my mother's house was very close to where Fleming's house was. That's where I met him. You know, there was also a very famous British big sort of hero in the the entertainment business, uh, a writer, producer, director, uh, and that was Noel Coward. You know, I knew Noel Coward and Ian Fleming and they both lived fairly close to where my mother's house was on the north coast of uh, Jamaica. So I got to know them at at that time. You ended up thinking about reggae music in the mind frame of what was being marketed as rock and roll music. Initially, it was with Jimmy Cliff, correct? That was the first reggae artist that you had thought you could run a route that was similar to what you were seeing in the rock and roll marketing production and promotion. Yes, I really felt that Jimmy, Jimmy firstly was really strong live. He could move really well and his songs were really good. And he was and still is, he's still around, you know, and he's really an incredible talent, Jimmy Cliff. And Jimmy Cliff also, you know, actually is the person who introduced Bob to the person who first recorded Bob Marley. So in, in a way, Jimmy Cliff sort of discovered Bob Marley. Incredible. It was my understanding that that you worked with him, but it didn't really work out, and you didn't get to run the route that you wanted to. Bring us back there. Tell us a little bit about this transition time, because this is right around the time that you met Bob Marley. I really believed in Jimmy Cliff, but we just weren't getting success for whatever reason. I guess the songs weren't quite right or, or whatever. Even though he was building or following with his live live show, because Jimmy Cliff also, always had a very good sense of finding musicians, and he would come come back, you know, one week and sort of it got a new band together, and then you'd hear them, and the band were really really great, but we were never able to get a, a, a hit with Jimmy. I had told him when he had come to talk to me about the fact that he'd been offered by RCA, Victor had been offered to sign with them. And I said, oh, Jimmy, you shouldn't sign with them because, you know, we're getting there. So he decided to stay with me and not to sign to RCA, Victor. Within about 10 days of that, somebody called me and said, would you like to meet Bob Marley and the Whalers because they're in England and they're stranded because they'd been in Stockholm doing some music for a film, their airfares only sent them back to London and they had no airfares back to Kingston. So could you meet with them and see if you could do some deal with them to get them, you know, so they can get back to Kingston? So What? Yeah, so that's how I met them. (laughs) They were already, you know, doing films in Sweden, for instance, so they had some international recognition. Why didn't they have a manager? Why didn't they have a, a partner like you? The manager was really, but they had at the moment, at that moment, he was really based in America. He was an American guy. He wasn't really into Jamaican music. He'd gone to Jamaica and he liked it. His main focus was uh, American music and his main artist was, his name was Johnny Nash. And he managed Johnny Nash, who really was having a career of his own. 
the guy wasn't really paying too much attention to Bob and the whalers. I recall you telling me this and I couldn't believe it. In this meeting, was this where you gave them the money to go and record an album and that was also partly what they used for the airfare? Or bring us back to the room. When they arrived, they walked in like gods. They didn't walk in like three guys who were stranded in London and with no way to get back home. They, they, walked, they, they walked in. They had such charisma and such a presence. All three of them, Peter Tosh, Bunny Whaler, and Bob Marley, the three of them. I just sat with them and chatted to them and uh, asked them what they were trying to do and what they were aiming for. And uh, they were basically aiming, trying to get, uh, you know, some Jamaican music on American black radio. And and I told them I didn't really think that that, that, that would happen right now. I didn't think I didn't think that would work right now because I didn't think that Jamaican music was something at that time was going to appeal, appeal to black American radio. So they said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I think you should be like a black rock act. Bob kind of picked it up a bit, but Peter and Bunny didn't feel the same way. They felt they should be going on the way they were doing and they didn't know about changing into being a rock and roll act and stuff like that. I asked them how much it would, would it cost them to do an album, and they told me, they said it was 5000 pounds, something like that, 4,000, 5,000 pounds, decided that the best way to try and work with them, because they'd been given a very hard time, because they, they, they were a, t- a team together, they'd made a lot of their own recordings, the recordings were great, those early recordings of Bob Marley are great, great recordings, but they never got the chance, because, you know, the, it, it, it was a kind of, a little bit of a kind of corrupt system, because you know, the, the big producers, uh, which were the sound system guys now, they, they had a lot of kind of control over the DJs and etc. And um, so it was very hard for these guys to get across. Anyhow, they went back to Jamaica. And then uh, I went back to Jamaica maybe three months later rather hoping that I was going to hear something. And but what, what, what did you, where did you place the odds that there would be music for you to listen to or that you, these guys would be in business with you at all? I, I just felt it. You know, I, I, felt, I felt that they heard what I said. Do you know what I mean? And a couple of them weren't that keen on the idea. I think Bob was ready to try and move away from what they were doing and try and give it more of a rock sensibility. So you're back in Jamaica, you're going over to the studio, and you hear this music for the first time. What was, what was the first song that you heard on this album? The first one I heard was Catch a Fire. I liked it a lot. It's before we'd put the, the guitar on it, before I'd added any of the rock players on it, because what, what it was, it was still very much a Jamaican rec- recording. And then I took Bob to London to do some, some more work on the album just to, to make the album a bit more rockish. I had the guitarist who I had met in Muscle Shows, and he was in England, and um, I, I put him on the record, and he played, he played just a brilliant opening guitar solo for the, the first song on the album, which was called uh, Concrete Jungle. In England, we really made the album moved it into having a kind of rock element to it. But the, the record that was made in Jamaica was a great record too. It was a great record, the Jamaican record. It just didn't have the 
guitar elements that were added for when we went over to England. You were essentially giving similar advice to what could be heard, I imagine, in the 90s or 2000s, which is like, you're not going to win on the radio. You're going to win on college radio. You're going to win on live touring. The experience is what's going to win you lifelong fans. Is that fair to extrapolate that as your mindset at this time? Yes. Well, it definitely was that the, the, the focus would be on, on live gigs because they had such a strong image, the three of them. You know, they were kind of, for, for some people, they were scary as hell. And for others, you know, they were just something different as a band that you'd ever seen. You know, they were, they were rasters, you know, and they were wild, but their musicianship was fantastic. That first record, Catch a Fire, when I heard it, I, I, when it was finished, I, I was so excited about it. And I thought to myself, this record is going to sell a million copies, you know, and I would say, yeah, 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 reggae. No reggae albums ever sold more than 5,000 copies. I said, well, I'm, I just think it's going to sell a million copies. So <laughs> I, I, was, I was actually on the road with traffic in America, and I rang back to England. And I said, oh, how's the album doing? And they said, oh, we sold about 3,000. I said, 3,000, that's all you've sold. He said, well, that's, that's pretty good for a reggae album. And I was so upset, I can't tell you. And, at this, and have you been proven right? Well, eventually it ended up, uh, Catch a Fire sold over a million copies eventually. But it just, yes. it just, it opened the door. That record opened the door, definitely. You also got to work with U2. Tell us a little bit about how you got exposed to U2 and how, and how it was different in the way that you, you know, managed them as artists. I saw them for the first time after a concert that Bob Marley was doing in London. And somebody had set up for you 2 to play in a little club in South London, not far from where Bob was doing his concert, which was somewhere called Crystal Palace in London. How big was this Bob show? Uh, a big one. Bob, it was actually his last, ended up being his last show in, um, in England before he passed away. It was in, in, in I think it was in, in 1980. So after the show, I went to this little club, tiny little club, and there were about 15 people there in, in the club, of which, you know, about five or six were people with me, and, and about five or six were people with the band. And about five or six was just hangers-on who were there. So it wasn't, it wasn't a proper gig. It wasn't a set-up gig. It was just something where they were going to play, and I would, I would meet, be meeting them or seeing them play, etc. When I saw them, I thought, I, I thought they were fantastic. I thought their aura was fantastic, and their presence was fantastic. There was just something about them which I just knew that they were going to make it. I didn't really feel the music initially because it was much more, you know, I mean, Jamaican music is all about heavy bass and heavy drums and things like that. And their music was much more high frequency, if you know what I mean, like guitar. And, 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 and so I didn't feel it personally, but I absolutely felt then. And also there was a guy who was their manager who was really impressive. And, you know, back in those days, most, most of the managers, not all by any means, but most of the managers would be 
the pal of one of the musicians who couldn't play an instrument, and so he ended up being helping the loan get them bookings and etc. etc. But in the case of you two, there was somebody there. He was dressed in a suit, you know, with a tie on and all that sort of thing. And I thought, my gosh, this is a really serious operation, this. And so it was a mixture of their presence, and, and which I believed in completely, with the fact that I felt they had somebody there who was really serious and really knew what he was doing and be able to manage them. I told the people at Island Records that I really wanted to sign them. We were signing them, but I wanted Island Records to be supportive of them, fully supportive of them, and to take their leadership and support their leadership. Basically, give them a base for them to do what they want to do. That was based on the fact that I believed in the band themselves and in the manager they had. In so many cases, the record business, people meddle around unnecessarily, you know, meddle around. You, yeah. you know, you're signing somebody, they know what they're doing, that's their life. Let them find their way rather than try and point them this direction or that direction when they're not a musician or anything else other than wanting to hear something they'd like to hear. So there, there would be a lot of situations, I would say, over the years in the record business where a lot of artists found themselves in a difficult position where they, they, they weren't really free to do what they were doing and what they were creating. But in Island Records, that was never really the case because we were independent. We were a tiny independent. We didn't have to answer to a board of directors or anybody. We could just do what we believed in. We were a different kind of a company, really. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Cannot believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I find it so fascinating how many artists loved working with you because you guys were hands off with them in that way where, you know, you, you know, saw yourself not as like, you know, the sixth member of the band, you saw yourself as this empowering function that would, you know, clear the runway for them to focus on their creativity and their craft and the art that they, you know, were making without it's just an interesting line to walk that it seems was second nature to you. Yeah, that is true. We were different in that regard because it wasn't a corporation. It wasn't, it was a, it was a kind of a private company. That was the difference. If I had a job, I couldn't have signed Bob Marley as I signed Bob Marley to give him some money and go and make a record. I couldn't have, they'd just say, you crazy as it happened. You know, everybody around said, you crazy? You're never going to see that money. You're not going to see him again. I said, well, I don't think so. I, I believe in the guy. It's very, very different. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a luxury, a huge luxury to be able to follow your own instincts and everything. In a structured company, it's not often that you're able to do that. I want to talk about the whole journey, not just, you know, the music. As you were entering your fourth decade as a all types music executive, you started to transition into placemaking. You were still running Island and you were, you know, designing your first resorts and hotels and properties, correct? That sort of came by over time. You know, there was like a, a place in Jamaica, which I used to go to as a child, came on the market uh, called Strawberry Hill. It's a, it's, it's a house 3000 feet up in the, in the mountains behind Kingston. I bought that, and when I bought it, you know, I didn't buy it with the idea of that I was going to make a home out of it. I bought it with the idea of, you know, developing it as a kind of a place that people can go and visit and, uh, you know, can stay or have lunch or, you know, you know a, little, a little sort of resort hotel. The next one after that was GoldenEye, initially built by Ian Fleming. Who wrote all of the James Bond books and... All of the James Bond books were written there. Exactly. I bought that. I bought that really because my mother had asked me if I if I could buy it for her because it had come on the market, and she had been looking after the house for Ian Fleming's son. This is after Ian Fleming had died. She asked me if I could buy it because you know she loves the house and she's been swimming around there all the time, etc. I told her, okay, that I, I would do that but I didn't actually really have the cash to do it at the time. So I rang Bob 
and I told him, you know, there's this place in uh, near Ocherias, you know, which is really a nice place where all the James Bond books were written, and it's a beautiful spot and everything. And you, you, I recommend you buy the house there. He said, "What do you think?" And I said, well, "I think it's a great thing place to buy. You should buy it." So he said, "Okay." So we, we called um, the agent who was selling the house to said, "Okay, um, Bob is going to buy it." And they went through all the documentation and everything, and it takes in Jamaica six months or so for something like that all to happen. And in six months' time, it's, everything was ready to sign. And uh, Bob rang me and said, well, he, he actually never got around to go see it yet. He feels he needs to go to see it before he really decides to buy it. So I said, well, yeah, you should go and see it. So he went to see it, and when he saw it, he said, you know, it's not really my thing. It's a bit too posh for me. It's not my, my kind of uh, place. So I think, can I get out of it? And, I, and by which time my finances had recovered. So that's how I bought it. <laughs> Before the Art Deco, you know, renaissance of Miami Beach, you know, in the 80s, 90s, the Marlin and the Tides. Tell us a bit about that chapter. We had signed a girl singer from the club world and she was going to do a video in, in Miami. So I eventually went down. And I went driving around, and every single building on South Beach, every single building was for sale. What's going on? I just don't get it. Everything was run down, and there was a lot of, you know, drug running and stuff like that going on. And South Beach was considered very dangerous at that time. Miami was just, you know, a bit of a mess, except that it had all this, you know, Art Deco buildings there. And I thought, well, this, this is incredible. Look, look at the beach. The beach is incredible. I can't believe that nobody's here. So when I went to see this girl, I met somebody there who was a sort of somebody who was, to me, was a, a, a goddess, as it were. Her name was Barbara Huniki. I, by then, had picked on a couple of ideas of different locations that I'd like to buy. I spoke to Barbara Huniki and I said, you know, I would love you to do something a little different to what you've normally been doing, which is clothes. I'd love you to design the Marlin Hotel, this one place which was all broken down, which was a crack attic house, you know, and it was a mess there. So she did the design for the Marlin, and the Marlin became the, the first sort of hotel that got a lot of press, and that soon at attracted uh, uh, Versace, and he would come and stay at the Marlin for ages, and from there, it just grew. And around what year did you make the transition to placemaking back in Jamaica and investing this level of hospitality infrastructure into your, your Jamaica properties? It was the mid-90s when basically things were doing really well there. And then I decided I really, really wanted to go back and live in Jamaica. That's how that happened. And I sold, I sold all the hotels there. I had a couple of hotels in, in um, the Bahamas, one called Pink Sands, another called Compass Point. I b built um, Strawberry Hill, fixed that up, and then started work on Golden Eye. I encourage any listener to you know, Google Island Outpost and take a look at how you know, Chris designs spaces and how he and his partner Marika think about you know, barefoot hospitality, you know, really making these places feel like you're over at a friend's house more so than at like a, a fancy hotel. Tell, tell us a bit about it. Was it conscious? Was it with a strategy where you're like, you know what, I see this and this is clearly a great way to get 
you know, the people I love to come spend time in the spaces I care about, or did this just sort of happen as a natural progression from your, from your previous career? I, d- I just did it as I like what I feel, you know, what I feel people would like, because I had a lot of experience traveling around hotels because I went, I love to go on the road with the bands. It's a great point. You know, and I, I, I love that. I remember one day Ahmed Erdogan met me. Ahmed Erdogan was my big hero. He was a owner of Atlantic Records. And he said, what are you doing all the time on the road with the bands? You've got a record company you're supposed to be running. And I said, well, I like, I like, I like to go on the road with the bands because I like to f- f- see what's happening and get a feel of what's happening and how they're doing and, the experience of travel experience in different places is, is the greatest thing, really. I mean, you, you, you just learn from there. Once, you, once you're open to learn, you have all the opportunities when you're traveling. You go, <clears throat> you go from, you know, Detroit to Chicago and to Chicago to, you know, Memphis or, and, or all, over the, all over the places. It, it, I, I, I loved it. I absolutely lo- loved all that. I learned all the time. I, I saw things that just didn't work. You saw things which were a lot of money was spent in it, but it was like a sort of a waste of time because it had no feel and it had no warmth, and, you know, that kind of thing. I guess with all that experience, I just learned that as what, you know, what people really need when they're traveling. It's just simplicity. Like what? What is simplicity to you? Just to be comfortable and the space, you know, I mean, I never liked big hotels a lot. I never liked, you know, a lot of, a lot of corridors, all that kind of thing. I, I didn't think that was, it didn't have a nice feel to it. So I've always liked more things which are a little more personal. Where you are now, this is your space and you're comfortable in your space. And now you, you invest all of your energy and time really in Jamaica. I'm curious, what do you think it is about Jamaica in particular? I grew up there as a child and I was sick, so... I was really looked after by a nurse. Pretty much all the time as a child, I was on my own. I I don't remember any birthday parties or Christmas parties or party parties or things like that because I I I was just not that well all the time. So I grew up really being nurtured and looked after by Jamaicans. So that was really my route. I cared for them a great deal because they were really looking after me, as it were. What I really wanted to try and do was to improve the lives of the people that I, you know, met and come in touch with and got to know their world. What motivates your lifestyle now? Like, what, what are the things that bring you the most joy? If it's something that, um, that you've set up or you've done or you're working on and it's working, that's a joy, you know. I, lo- I, I love that. I was all, always trying to do something uh, and to do it well and to have it something which has a, a, a lasting time, not something which is going to be flash in the pan. And also something which I feel can last and, and grow. I'm always a long-term thinker. You had a great quote back in the record business. It was, uh, I'm in the career business. I'm in the artist business with the records being milestones, so I'm not in the record business per se. What are some of the things that you think we should keep in mind? One, planning for the long term and building things that are intentional clearly is what brings you pleasure, 
what are some of the other things, if any, that, that you'd like to see us, you know, carry forward? I think giving people opportunity, if you are in a position that you can help somebody in any way or have an idea, something, you know, they're struggling with something and you can give them an idea of what to do. Or I just believe that one should try and elevate things all the time. I just really wanted to thank you for being on the podcast and, and, you know, giving us a bit of your time and, you know, for me personally, just for the inspiration and, and, you know, the helping hand for, for the years. And, and again, you know, we, we, we do really, really appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you. I thank you very much. And it's been great meeting you, honestly. Really good. I love what you're doing. Really love what you're doing. Thank you, Chris. Thank you all for listening. This has been the art of the hustle. See you next time. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.